0: This is the Monday, June 6th, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore How I miss those old towns of mine The sawdust on from the floor where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis and you're listening to a special paperback edition of The History Author Show on iArt Radio. We shared our very first interview with an author back in August of 2015, and we kicked it off with what sounded like a vaudeville setup. Three mules, two brothers, and a Jack Russell Terrier named Olive Oil. My guest was Rinker Buck, and his book, The Oregon Trail, A New American Journey, recounted the trek he made with his brother Nick in a covered wagon, 2,000 miles from Missouri to the great American Northwest. In the months since it first hit the shelves, the Oregon Trail has wended its way up the New York Times bestseller list all the way to number one, and Amazon.com named it the best nonfiction book of 2015. When completing the first mule powered crossing of this legendary pioneer trail, the first such crossing in over a century, Rinker Buck met a lot of people, and he met them again in a new light, after they had a chance to see the enthusiastic response to how he shared the story of their ancestors and where they live today. With the paperback edition of The Oregon Trail appearing in bookstores this June, we thought, why not bring Rinker back to hear about those experiences on his tour? After all, he only set out to write a book, but his pen sparked a national phenomenon and renewed interest in The Legend of the Oregon Trail. Oh, and I invite you to go back and enjoy our original interview. You can find it at HistoryAuthor.com, iTunes, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening. I considered including some of that conversation here, but it felt too much like one of those clip shows from 70s sitcoms. You know the ones, I mean. The sort they call a bottle show, where they save a lot of money by just staying on one set, no guest stars, nothing. They just jam the Brady kids in the basement and replay bits you've already seen. I don't know. It always felt like a cheat to me. So anyway, in the spirit of doing better than the bunch, here's my all-new conversation with best-selling author Rinker Buck on his trail after the Oregon Trail. I'm here in Simon & Schuster's headquarters on 6th Avenue in New York City with Rinker Buck, best-selling author of The Oregon Trail. You were the very first author I interviewed for the show, so thank you for taking the time to do this follow-up.
1: Well, it's great to be back, and it's an idea. Maybe we should do more (laughs) follow-ups.
0: Yeah, we were just saying before we started rolling how the media usually doesn't follow-up. They sort of make you live in that maybe three-minute, ten-second segment.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: And here we are coming back to it because – The book goes and takes on a life of its own after you publish it. When we first talked, it was six months ago, you were just kicking off a national book tour. Since then, in stories from small town newspapers and pictures you posted at facebook.com slash rinkerbuck, I've been able to follow how your story has touched people. But how did their reaction touch and change you as you went back and now they had the actual book in their hands?
1: Mm -hmm. I was actually surprised at how sophisticated the response was from readers who you might not expect to be that sophisticated. There's just huge numbers of really diligent readers out there. And because this is a dense book, it's a complicated book in some ways. There's my story of crossing the trail itself. There's sort of memoir elements of my family how Growing up in a horse family prepared me for this, my relationship with my dad and that sort of thing. And then there's just a lot of straight history. You know, what was cholera really about? What was the trail really like? Why did religion play such a role? So you don't expect large numbers of readers out there to absorb all this and really like it, and, and so many did. But I would say the single biggest reaction, strong emotional reaction, was from the number of people who now live all over the country, but mostly on the West Coast, whose great-grandparents, whatever, crossed the trail in the 19th century. And that has remained a fact of family lore, a great attraction of family lore. But none of these descendants really knew what the trail was like. You know, they just thought it was kind of a myth out there. Oh, yeah, great-granddaddy crossed to Oregon and got this branch of the family started. Uh, The rest of the family still back in Illinois. And this was 160 years ago. But we never really knew what they went through on the trail. And we read your book. And now we have a better sense of our own family history. That was very rewarding for me. It wasn't a response I expected. You don't write a book with any particular person in mind or any particular demographic. So among what would now be the millions of Oregon Trail descendants, there was a huge interest and it was very gratifying to get that response.
0: It makes me think of our first chat because the first thing I said when you called, and Mm -hmm. you were out in Idaho, I
1: believe, at the time. We talked on the phone. I remember sitting by the side of the road (laughs) in Idaho, yeah. I first got you on the
0: phone, and it was as if I was speaking to an old friend because I knew you through your writing, Mm -hmm. and I had to kind of remind myself that And I said it when we did the interview that you don't know me, but I feel as if I know you, I think that's a moment maybe that we all get at some point, maybe we forget to do that. Fortunately, I, my brain clicked in and I I said, you know, I can't, can't be so familiar with you, but I wondered if when you're out on the trail and people have read this, if there were some really memorable encounters with people like that, who maybe felt this is exactly what my grandfather went through. Or maybe right. they knew Narcissa Whitman, who's a character in mm-hmm. your book, the first white woman to cross the Rockies. What were those encounters like with people that maybe really wanted to hug you?
1: <laughs> uh, those encounters were great, and everyone wanted to be part of the trip. People would come up to me at rodeo corrals, where I just happened to be camping with the wagon that night, and give me $20 because they want to help with the trip. But the response of people was one of overwhelming hospitality and generosity. Listen, the people who live along the Oregon Trail know it. It's a part of their local lore. And there are many ranches out there where the original ruts run, oh, ten, 10, 11, 6, 7 miles through a larger ranch. They're very aware of the trail history and the heritage and what they're protecting by not allowing any development on the ruts or they don't put their irrigators or plow along the original Oregon Trail. And their response to us was just overwhelmingly supportive, just Here's the best place to put your mules, you can use our corrals, my wife is cooking dinner, come on over to the ranch house in an hour, et etc., et cetera, like that. It was just overwhelming generosity and sort of a vicarious need of people to help because they wanted to be taking the journey themselves.
0: It makes them a little part of it.
1: It does. But then there were several ranches we went, went across that were still continuously owned by the family the descendants of the family who had originally crossed the trail to get to this place. And they were very excited because they hadn't had a covered wagon pulled by real mules, you know, a real covered wagon trip come through in the whole time of their family history there, which would be over 100 years, 150 years in some cases. In one case of family in Oregon was very excited when we took the trail through a place called Burnt Canyon along the uh, Burnt River very, very remote stretch of the trail in the Oahe Mountains of eastern Oregon. And they're absolutely certain we were not only the first wagon to cross in 100 years, but uh, the first people they'd let across, you know, onto their ranch to cross. So I think it was a response of great generosity and hospitality and great fascination.
0: When I was walking here today from Radio City, which is just a couple blocks up sure. 6th Avenue, I thought of, when I first came back from Australia and you said ranch and it reminded me, I was up at a place called Strathburn Station, which is kind of up on that big horn of Australia and the mm-hmm. Northeast in Queensland. And there was nobody there. There was a rancher and his yeah. wife and his three kids. And it's slightly bigger than Rhode Island, this ranch at the mm-hmm. time. And yeah. they don't ever see people really from the outside. And mm-hmm. you're standing there and we're way out. But then I came back through Penn Station on the train, and I looked down and I was standing on one of those sort of big sidewalk blocks and looking at the cracks, maybe like you do when you're a kid and you don't want to step on them, right? Mm -hmm. Step on a crack, break your mother's back. And I thought, there are more people right now just on this square of concrete than there are in that entire ranch back in Australia. So when you come to New York City now, or you go to any big city, how do you look at it having been out there with so much nothing and just relying on yourself? Um.
1: There's a minor feeling of panic, actually, because it's too propinquitous. There's too much stimuli, too much noise, et cetera. We crossed one ranch. I, I think it was the happiest moment of the trip in, in many ways, but we crossed one ranch called the Split Rock Ranch, which is uh, maybe seven or eighty miles, pretty much due south of Casper, Wyoming, near Independence Rock. It's 191,000 acres. It's 37 miles across the ranch, so we actually camped twice on the ranch (laughs) getting across because we only did about 30 miles a day. And the rancher and his wife live there with their two young children, and they homeschool the kids because it's like a 30-mile drive to the closest school, and that school only had four students. So great, great familiarity with loneliness and so forth. But also, people are very sophisticated, like both of these ranchers had gone to uh, the University of Wyoming and taken uh, agricultural science and so forth. They're four-year graduates and so forth. And, you know, once a month or something, they get in the car and go down to Rollins and go shopping and take their kids to a movie or something like that. I don't think any modern life is really that isolated anymore. But I've always felt more comfortable in the country and a country boy. And I think the Oregon Trail trip made me even a little bit more People leery. You know, I don't like crowds as much anymore.
0: You really get stuck in there when you're with people and you realize something maybe you didn't notice before when you're in New York every day. The Mm -hmm. children out there in Australia had school of the air and so they would have the teacher come in and they said the teacher was just here she comes once a year and we this is where we all slept and they slip sleep literally right on their front porch and there's no really problem yeah. with it they just sleep outside there's not much rain and it was just amazing to think of being out there and look around and see nothing
1: their mail is delivered by air right yeah and there's royal australian doctor corps and they're pilots they fly in to each cattle station, sheep station. They'll fly in when they're needed in an emergency, but generally they fly in on a three or four month rotation, keep track of their patients, just like any other doctor with patients. But there's a whole generation of children as best described, I think, in uh, Jill Kirk Conway's The Road from Courain, where she describes her upbringing on a very, very remote a sheep station in Australia, New South Wales, and getting educated over the radio And here's someone who then went on to the University of Sydney and got a degree and so forth and ended up being the president of Smith College. It's fascinating to me that that isolation promotes a certain bookishness because generally homeschool kids from very rural areas do better on standardized tests than the kids that are in with a lot of people in their classroom. The one other thing I found about coming to the city since you asked is, um, you know, it, it took us four months to cross the Oregon Trail. We made 79 camps. There were plenty of times when we went from one town to the next, but once we got to Wyoming and Idaho, it was pretty isolated. We, we would camp out and not see anybody for three or four days, and I just found that what I learned was I was less dependent on the world than I thought I had to be. When you live among civilization, you will take advantages of civilization. When you don't live among it, you learn that everything you need is right there. You just have to keep going like one Description in the book is described when we crossed the little Colorado desert to find water at the Green River. It was a 42-mile day we had to make in a covered wagon with mules, which was very rigorous, across a desert terrain, 100 degrees, following the ruts. I had to navigate pretty carefully because the ruts aren't exactly well marked. And I just found that uh, if there was a red-tailed hawk circling, I knew he was near a creek rush or a river wash. You know, he was near water somewhere, even though it would be a wash and the water would be far deep under, he wouldn't actually see it on the surface. But the red-tailed hawk was there because the prairie dogs were there because they would burrow in and find the water and that's where they lived. And so I started navigating by the hawks because I knew the hawks would always be over some kind of water and I could see the dry washes on my maps. So you're deprived of all the advantages of civilization. You're deprived of a lot of people and to show you where the way and road signs and all that, and you learn to cope. I, I was following red Redtail Hawks across the little Colorado desert, and it worked.
0: <laughs> Probably before you even realized it, because you you dumped the GPS, and I mean that's it's not working. And the, the GPS would
1: say uh, <laughs> traveling on road. <laughs> you know, it was so. But nobody bothers to put those kind of roads on the database because yeah. nobody's out there. I visited
0: Limerick just after Frank McCourt's Angela's Ashes won the Pulitzer Prize. Mm-hmm. And I'd been there before to Ireland. Ireland had by then was just starting this tourism boom partially because of the book. The locals said they'd been very excited when they first learned that someone had written about their Mm -hmm. town. Then they sort of read his descriptions and he was very obviously stark about the poverty and the lack of compassion that he received from the Catholic Mm -hmm. church and from the neighbors and such things. And their enthusiasm cooled, they said, and some of them were outright hostile towards him. They said it was never like that. And when I was reading your book, I got the impression that the experience was the opposite. People on the trail, after they read your book, were actually mm-hmm. more enthusiastic. They they said this covered wagon guy who came through and they would have helped you anyway, but mm-hmm. sometimes when you say you're writing a book, it's hard to really visualize it for people. Is right. that the experience you found?
1: Sure, in some ways. What happened with Frank McCourt was that it was a huge hit with what uh, we call the Irish diaspora. You know, Irish Americans who were three or four generations away from Ireland, and they greatly enjoyed reading about how impoverished and how difficult it was and how obstinate the Catholic Church could be, for instance. But if you're Irish and you're still living that life over there, even though life has changed a lot in Ireland, there's no immigrant experience to abstract you from the impact of it and from what the implications are. The Irish are backward, filthy people who had to emigrate to survive. The country itself couldn't support them. I think there was an equal thing abstracting people along the trail. First of all, I, I was generally writing about even though I wrote about tough experiences and bad experiences that the pioneers had on the trail. It is generally an uplifting book because the trail delivered so many people to freedom for the west. Second of all, there's so many incidents in the book about wonderful people taking steps to preserve the trail. Like there was uh, the Midway Station, old cabinet Midway Station in Nebraska, just below Gothenburg, Nebraska. There's a beautiful old log cabin there that was used originally as a pioneer trading post and then as a Pony Express stop and so forth. The rancher there, who's in his 70s and retiring, and his kids really aren't interested in keeping the old ranch going, he decided instead of passing on to his heirs or whoever bought the ranch the responsibility of continuously restoring and keeping after this cabin, he would build this beautiful barn around it, and he did, and it keeps the rain and the wind out and everything, and it will extend the life of that old, famous, kind of treasured historic site, the Midway Pony Express Station, for years and years longer than it would have if it was left out in the rain. And there were many experiences like that I had, uh, people just very generously protecting the trail in their neighborhood or putting new fences and gravestones on, old trail grave sites and that sort of thing. Um, So I don't know. What people would read in the book, Who Live Along the Trail, that would make them annoyed. You know, a few things I said maybe, but not that much.
0: It seemed as if people were even more connected to it. Mm -hmm. It really sparked them. One author wrote in the Coloradan that she had grown up along the Platte River, but that, quote, as Buck described their journey along my river, I was surprised by the beauty, charm, and history that he saw that eluded
1: me. And Mm -hmm.
0: that has to be a special feeling to realize you open somebody's eyes to something they were looking at their whole life.
1: I think when you live somewhere, you take it for granted. Like I remember the disappointment in my mother's expression and voice when I came back after studying in England for a year and a half and I lived in London for 18 months. And she said, well, how did you like the Tower of London? And I said, oh, I never went. you know." (laughs) And you fail to appreciate where you live. Like I lived in New York City all these years. And how many people who lived in New York City go to the Statue of Liberty? I mean, I'm sure you can find millions who lived in New York for a long time, never visited the Statue of Liberty. So you tend to take for granted what's right next door to you, because maybe you consider your life just sort of ordinary and predictable. So yes, I got that response a lot, or I got response a lot from former Nebraskans you know, who lived along the trail and knew how important the trail was for their upbringing and everything, but for whatever reason, mainly financial reasons to get a job somewhere, they left Nebraska, and they haven't gone back a lot. And so to have someone appreciate the beauty of the landscape and the significance of the trail through their old neighborhood, pretty moving for them. People really get attached when their life or their precinct, you know, their neighborhood gets attention in a quality book. They're reading in your book something that they never saw there. This was the place like where you and I grew up and, oh yeah, that tree over there, that's where my girlfriend jilted me and This is where we had the flat tire and the thunderstorm. And you're not remembering the beauty and the history and the romance of it. You're remembering how you lived.
0: And especially with the history of it, that's a thing certainly with New York City. The Roxy used to be up the street, up Mm -hmm. 50th, and that was the place to be in the jazz age. And when Don Miller came on and I interviewed him about his book, Supreme City, I said, Mm -hmm. I go by that and I see the... TGI Friday <laughs> awning on there now. And I say, but this was the place you, you want to mm-hmm. grab somebody on the street and just tell them that this was, this is the history of the place. And sometimes you do. And people are very interested and sometimes they don't want to hear it and don't understand what the significance there's is. There's another,
1: there's another element of that that people responded to, which really helped, I think, which was, okay. So I'm a writer and, and a historian and I, and I come and I look and I'm from the outside and I take a big look and What is it about the Oregon Trail that people take for granted that I didn't? So, for instance, I explain in the book how it wasn't a single set of ruts, a single trail all the way across. It was a collection of trails. It was a shared landscape. There were pioneers on the north side of the Platte and on the south side of the Platte. There were pioneers north through the old gold country, uh, north of the Sweetwater near Independence Pass, the Continental Divide. And there were pioneers who were way south of there all called the Oregon Trail, it all was the Oregon Trail. It was only when the federal government came along and said, we're going to preserve the trail that they had to have agreed upon most traveled area and call that the trail. But in western Wyoming, the trail was 150 miles wide. So all these local people responded on Facebook page or whatever. Thank you so much. We've been having so many battles with our neighbors. They're 30 miles away and they say the Oregon Trail went through their neighborhood And we've always said, and there's an Oregon trail marker on our property, you know, and, you know, I was able to write them back. Well, you're both right, you know, and they learned that from the book that the trail was very wide in places. There were all kinds of cutoffs and bypasses and so forth. A river could be flooding one year and not the next. So everybody went 50 miles different to get away from the flooded river. A lot of the people in those neighborhoods read the book and loved this because it finally explained some things to them that they'd never studied as much and didn't know the reason for those kind of contradictions.
0: And that's also a very modern way probably to look at it that they might not have ever thought that this was not like interstate 80 where you go right across the country. This was people just trying to kind of claw their way across often following the things that wagons before them had discarded. So,
1: Mm -hmm. well, there was another truth of the book that's interesting, which is, and you know, a lot of times professional historians don't like to hear this from me, someone they consider merely a writer Historians tend to really focus on the big events, the big leaders, uh, the big issues of history. They don't get into, they're not interested in, well, what did this mean for the ordinary lives of ordinary Americans? And I tend to be more interested in those tangible kind of details. So in learning about the trail, you know, what it was like to have to stop and grease your wheels every few days, how hard it was to find water, That the Indians really were friendly. Details like that, what it meant for the average guy on the trail, or average family on the trail at that time, was very rewarding and welcome to people. Because for the most part, if they were interested in the trail, they had to read the official histories, which tended to reinforce a big moment, big leader interpretation of history.
0: I I was reading a book the other day, and I thought along those same lines, I thought, Mm -hmm. this is a really good book. I wish I could remember which book it was exactly. Mm -hmm. But... I thought so much history we read, they treat the people who weren't the big picture on the cover as Mm -hmm. extras in a movie. You know, The extra, just you pay them five bucks, right? They show up for the movie, they cheer Spartacus, and then you never think of them again. But those people in old pictures, they had a life just as real as Spartacus or Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln or what have you. I mean, I want to know what they did. What was your average day on the trail like? And by riding across this ground, you learn that in a way you couldn't have otherwise. So my guest is Rinker Buck, and we're here in person at Simon & Schuster's headquarters on 6th Avenue with the great teeming masses of humanity outside. You told one of our local New Jersey papers, this Mm -hmm. is two Jersey boys sitting here and talk, from New Jersey Farms. Yes, we do have farms in New Jersey, by the way. Great one at Rutgers, where I was with the pigs and sheep and the horses and Rinker Buck a little farther south. But you told this paper that you had to be honest when you're writing The Oregon Trail, that you had to give what you call the harsh self-assessment or people wouldn't trust the rest of your book. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, in light of that honesty, how does it feel to have inspired other folks who are going through struggles and difficulties and maybe doubt their ability to get in the covered wagon in their Mm -hmm. life and change the trailer on?
1: Well, I've learned this through um, earlier books, which is the more candid you are about yourself and the more self-deprecating you are about your own failures, that the more people feel they know you and they trust you because you're being unpretentious and honest. And I also tend to be a writer who is very critical of other people like, you know, these RVs would come along the road and stop and block our way because they were all so crazy to see a covered wagon going by. This was along parts of the trail that are now paved, of course. Things like that. I was critical of, say, you know, the Tea Party attitude towards federal Land policy and actually in so many ways federal land policy has been favorable and protected a a wonderful resource for the American people. But if you're going to be critical of others, you better show that you can turn the lens on yourself and talk about yourself. And in fact, a lot of my weaknesses and a lot of my character flaws, like being obsessed with detail, worrying about some kind of hazard that's right around the corner and in fact it's not there – In fact, you end up having an easy day, something I attribute to my Catholic upbringing. You're kind of trained at a young age to expect the worst because you are a sinner and you're going to sin, you know, that sort of thing. It just makes the book more available to people and they feel like they're going along as well because you feel normal to them. You're making yourself feel normal and there's no distortion involved. It's just that's who I am and what I write about.
0: And that's how they get to know you. Right. And I find now with people that run for office, now we're constantly inundated with candidates right at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I find, though, in the last few election cycles, that ability to be self-deprecating, which a lot of our great leaders have had and are very much connected with the people, it's been lost. Yes. Maybe partially because we are also tight and you yeah. very rarely see our candidates today take shots of themselves that a way, I think, in... 2000 there was a lot of that and I noticed a real change after that we mm-hmm. had Al Gore was not above making fun of his stiff image and mm-hmm. having some fun with it and George W. Bush dealt with what the image of his was and and mm-hmm. was willing to have a joke with it at the correspondence dinner and have the guy doing an impression and Bill Clinton, Reagan, many of Reagan's stories mm-hmm. were about that I mean I heard Reagan always say he was the Errol Flynn of the B pictures and mm-hmm. that it was a insult but then I saw one of his pictures and I said Was yeah. he goodness you yeah. know and
1: I don't think we have that in writing anymore either you have to be the writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Well, there's an irony about modern politics, which is that politicians are very scripted and they don't want to ever say the wrong thing because it can turn into another Jennifer Flowers incident or whatever. However, a staple of the convention movie, you know, the bio of the guy who wins, you know, like Bill Clinton did it and Al Gore did it. and But a staple of the uh, convention bio that they broadcast that everyone sees and goes across the country is... Here is my life, and here is the struggle I had. And so if you're lucky enough to, in today's world, you are lucky enough to have had an alcoholic stepfather who beat your mom and all that kind of stuff, and you were the boy that defended dad. I think that was Bill Clinton.
0: Him and Reagan both, by the way, which is interesting. Oh,
1: did Reagan have that? Yeah. And was it in his bio? Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, Obama, I mean, you know, look at what he had to recover from. His father wasn't really around much. You know, he had a hard time at college at first, because what is the role of African American in college, and so forth. So on the one hand, the campaign says, keep him scripted and don't let him say anything unpredictable that might boomerang for us. And then on the other hand, once he's won all the primaries, he's going to be the nominee. They make him seem like a regular guy to the American public by presenting the campaign bio. And I think the big change this time has been on the Democratic side, Bernie Saunders on the Republican side, Donald Trump, of course, is that they're not scripted and they are presenting an image that's very different. A lot of people may not like their image, particularly Trump, but he's authentic. He's genuine. He's saying real things that real people can relate to as opposed to the stump speech that was written by somebody else to be very carefully presented each time.
0: I think it was Adley Stevenson, wasn't it? It crossed his legs in an interview, and he had a hole in the bottom of his shoe. And the Mm -hmm. reporter said to the campaign manager whoever it was, I'm going to – this is the general story. I'll tell it a little uh, rough around the edges. But they said, do you want us to report that? And they said, oh, my gosh, yes, please tell everybody. Because he had this very stiff image, and here he is wearing an old pair of shoes. And the shoes you wore out, of course, on the Oregon Trail, coming back to that topic, was – the shoes on the wagon, yeah, and that's where your brother Nick's skills as a mechanic and also as a horseman dealing with the mule shoes Mm -hmm. wearing out and things like that. So I wanted to ask, since this is a follow-up interview, since you credit him with your New American Journey success, Mm -hmm. how is Nick, how is olive oil, and do you ever hear from the mules?
1: Yeah, well, olive oil's great. I just was on Nick's farm a few days ago. It's the mud season in Maine, and she just made a huge point before she jumped out of my lap. Uh, making a big circuit of the manure pile, the mud pile, all the puddles in the driveway, and then jumping on me. So she hasn't changed, and she's this wonderfully affectionate, scruffy, filthy dog. Nick is great. Nick uh, came back from the trail and got a big job building a house, a place called North Haven Island up in Maine. I don't think our relationship has changed that much with the publication of the book because he knew it would be honest. It's somewhat hard to uh, read about yourself describing some of the things I described with Nick, but I know the impact of the book because every time I do a book signing somewhere and or book talk, and then I finish, people come up to me and go, "How's Nick?" You know, yeah. they just love <laughs> Nick in the book. And I'm thinking I'm the big guy, you know. I'm like, "How's Nick? How's olive oil?" And as far as the mules, uh, they're really interesting. Mules actually recognize your voice better than anything else. Getting out of a rental car and visiting on the on a retirement ranch now, very comfortable in uh, Idaho. You know, you get out of the rental car and they, they look at you and it's just white guy, you know. And then I go, hey, Beck, hey, Butte. You know, they go, oh, no, that guy. You know, that's <laughs> the guy that harnessed us every day for four months. And Beck and Butte, who are the two molly mules or female mules, and who just didn't like me that much. It's just, it's just a fact. They they like Nick a little more. They just, take, as soon as they hear my voice, <laughs> they, they go all the way to the end of that retirement pasture. But Jake, who is my favorite and with whom I had a great relationship, he just walks right over and nuzzles around in my pocket. He knows there's going to be an apple in that pocket for him. But they're very healthy and they're doing well. I visited them twice in Idaho. I'll I'll probably visit them again this summer. And they're still pretty much the same mules I knew on the trail.
0: That was a great interview process when you went to meet the mules. I remember that. And Jake comes up to you that first mm-hmm. time, right? And yes, yeah. then sort of just sticks his head. And he's a big mule. The way he's you a huge him. mule. So he has yeah. nothing to fear from you. Mm-hmm. And yet he's generous. And, and yeah, you know, I don't know. That sounds like an odd thing to say about a mule, but yeah. I mean, they are very smart. They have a bigger brain than a horse. So yeah. he has a, they have a lot of personality. So I'm glad we got to follow up on how they're doing. And nice of you to send them off to retirement. They did their bit, as they said. Oh, they did their thing. Yeah. I saw the elephant. Yeah. Now, before you went out on the Oregon Trail, you Mm -hmm. were an author and journalist who, as you put it, had the divorce, had the bad driving record, Mm -hmm. you enjoyed a drink. I don't want to be too harsh, but that's pretty Mm -hmm. much (laughs) it. Sure. Uh, That's what I said. You decided it was wise to turn off of that trail and Mm -hmm. onto this ambitious, sentimental journey that you decided Mm -hmm. to make. So I wonder what you'd say to creative people who are kind of stuck in that similar rut and they want to take that first step to get out of it.
1: Well, I think people get stuck. And get writer's block on a book and something for two reasons. There might be emotional stuff going on in their life which is affecting their writing. But second of all, they just haven't quite done the research yet. They haven't quite gone out and lived the book or lived the material. Writing becomes easy when the material's there and you're all set. You have too much. You know, if you go out and live something for four months like, like we did intensively, 14, 18 hours a day, and then even sleeping in the covered wagon every night, I mean, you're going to have more material then you can use. But I also think that I did better with this book and the writing came easier and everything happened that has because the feelings of satisfaction, of ego boosting, were so genuine from this trip. I mean, the endurance that was required every day to sit on that bumpy wagon seat for 14 hours, there were plenty of places where the trail had vanished and there were trail markers, but they weren't in the spots like at intersections of two tracks where you needed them to know which turn to take. There were Rocky Mountain Mountains like Dempsey Ridge in Idaho that we had to come down about 2,000 feet in like a mile or a mile and a quarter. Very, very steep, very dangerous. There was a drop-off right beside us. If we'd gone over it, we would have, well, we all would have died, mules and all. So to have been able to conquer all that and get where we were going and face all the thunderstorms and the dust storms and everything, the ego satisfaction from it was so great and the professional satisfaction from it was so great. That, yeah, it put me in a different place. It put me in a better place.
0: I mentioned Frank McCourt earlier. Mm-hmm. And like you, he was what they call a late
1: blooming author. Yes. I'm wondering what
0: age I have to be to publish my first book before I Yeah, retirement age. Well, I'll give you a little
1: spiel on that, which is people incorrectly assess writing as something that's done with great success at a young age, probably because of the enormous motif example of, say, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Norman Mailer and stuff, who did achieve a lot at a young age. Okay, But if you look at Frank McCord, who didn't begin to write until he retired as a school teacher, and I think Angela's Ashes was published when he was 65, Norman McClain, who absolutely wrote what I consider two of the nonfiction gems in the whole pantheon there, which was A River Runs Through It and Young Men in Fire, he didn't start until he retired from teaching at the University of Chicago until he was in his 70s. William L. Shire, the great war journalist and so forth wrote a five-volume memoir, five-volume series of memoirs, three of which became bestsellers and all of which was written between the ages of 70 and 84, something like that. Leo Tolstoy, Philip Roth, you could go on and on. There's actually a huge tradition of great productivity and maybe belated success among older authors, so it's fairly typical. And I think it's better for you, actually, because I was just talking with my editor today about all the writers that went south very quickly. They had a very big success in their youth and then either couldn't write a good one again or didn't write a good one again. And so if I had been very, very successful as young, I know I would have been like all of them. I would have had a big convertible sports car and dated models, you know, stuff like that. (laughs) So there are advantages to having success come when you can handle it and the patterns of your life are secure enough that you're not going to make a fool of yourself
0: well you know don't let us down you can still have oh well there's i mean you know
1: there's i mean i'm in new york tonight i'm staying over there's some opportunities Yeah, sure.
0: Go test drive a nice convertible with a model.
1: Yeah, there could be a model in the bar (laughs) and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, stand there with the book. Just drop the book periodically every time a nice lady walks by and see if one of them goes by. Yeah, yeah. Have you
1: you read this book yet? Yeah, I'm I'm dreaming that I'm going to get on a plane and fly to California. And they're going to fly me out there first class. And I'm going to be on a plane. plane. Come on. Or maybe a biz jet. But my seatmate will be Jennifer Lawrence, you know. And she'll say, so what do you do for a living? (laughs) Well, I just happen to have a couple copies right here. You know, uh, no, I, you know, all those emoluments of uh, having a successful book really don't appeal to me that much. It's a lot of work to get started on the next one. I'm doing that already and I'm doing all the historical research for a flatboat trip that I'm going to take down the Mississippi. I really just want to be private citizen again, work like hell on my book. I love going on book tours and that's great, but you're with book lovers. But as far as. You know, the fame or people recognizing you in airports and stuff. It's not what it's about. Writing another good book is what it's about.
0: Well, I'm sure you'll do that. This experience has to influence that. It seems as if going down the Mississippi will be nice and tranquil compared to bouncing. But...
1: Supposedly, <laughs> but it can yeah. be dangerous too. But it's, yeah. it's like, I'm going to do one more book like this and then I have another list that'll be great. Yeah. So
0: now the final question that I wanted sure. to ask you was the, pioneers their story and the Oregon Trail, you lament that they aren't taught in schools. Some textbooks have maybe only a single line about the Mm -hmm. Oregon Trail. So do you see that changing now or do you see people pushing to change it now that people have seen what an incredible affinity and affection and passion there really is for this period?
1: No, I don't think it will change because there's a whole politics to how books are selected, textbooks are selected for schools and it distorts history actually. So school systems – in Texas and Southern California and Florida, which dominate the buying because that's where the population is, insist that we don't discuss religion too much because that's considered controversial. We don't discuss subjects like slavery and so forth because that's considered too controversial, and it has a political bent that they don't want. Francis Fitzgerald, the New Yorker writer, wrote a very good book about this a few years ago, and there's a new book out called Lies My Teachers Told Me. I forget the name of the author of that. But they're both very good and very documented books about how the purchase, the committee purchase process for textbooks so dominates what will occur in that book. The school system of Texas and Florida is not going to buy a book that deals honestly with how we treated the Indians or impact of cholera on the pioneers and so forth because it's considered controversial in those areas, in those constituencies, and those textbooks are what dominate pedagogy, teaching on this subject. So, you know, the fact that there was a lot of religious strife, that contributed to the Oregon Trail, traffic at the gold rush in California, which basically very few people actually made any money, and it was terrible for the gold rushers. The books just aren't going to go into that kind of detail. And I wish things were different, but I'm not that optimistic about how we make decisions about truth in history books.
0: You mentioned homeschooling before, and I think even if you have a student that's in the school system and you want them to pick up a book. The Oregon Trail has so many different angles on it that you could pitch. It has a dog, which is Mm -hmm. cute. It has mules. It has adventure. It has Native American tribes and adventure. I mean, it seems to me that if you were a young man, you were talking about wanting to go and read books. And we both certainly did that when Mm -hmm. we were younger, that this is a great book to put in the hands of a young person and tell that big story. Well,
1: some will. And, And the fact that the book did so well in the marketplace encourages me to think that Publishers will discover that there's always room for revisionism. And, you know, a lot of successful books come along like that. But in general, the business of promoting and teaching history in the United States is the business of promoting myths, things that make us feel good about our history, as opposed to the harsh truth. So, for instance, the South didn't succeed during the Civil War over the issue of slavery they succeeded over the issue of states' rights. It's really not accurate. It just didn't happen that way. But it's more comforting for southern school districts to read, we succeeded over states' right and the lost cause theory, which is still taught in the South. It's very comfortable for people to have that as their myth growing up than, you know, we didn't want to give up slavery, so we fought. Sorry for my lack of enthusiasm, but I don't think that's going to change.
0: That self-reflection we talked about with you and being a little self-deprecating and being honest. Pick up the Oregon Trail. I would say it's going to be out in paperback in June. Did you say? Yes, early June. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. Just in time for the 4th of July. And as you said, this is an uplifting book. The truth of the history behind it and the confusion that always follows the tragedy of a clash of cultures and people Mm -hmm. getting sick and suffering. There's some real tragedy with people falling under the wheels, which is a risk that you faced. Mm -hmm. So all of these kind of things are in there, but it really is uplifting and it's okay to be honest with our history. In fact, that's the best way. So as I said, I felt like I had met you through your writing and thought you'd be a fun guy to hang out with for half an hour. Granted, there are no sports cars here, Mm -hmm. but it was just as nice to be here at Simon & Schuster's office. You did not disappoint. The success could not have happened at a nicer fellow. I think it came at a perfect time. I don't Mm -hmm. think that you're a late bloomer at all, this is perfect. I hope you have at least 12 more books in you. So thank you very much for joining me today and best of luck with your next adventure.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Dean. I've enjoyed it. The
0: book is The Oregon Trail, A New American Journey. And if you like the book, go ahead and like facebook.com slash rinkerbuck. As always, you can find the link to purchase your copy at our website, historyauthor.com. You can do that either in hardcover or the new softcover out in June 2016. And remember, you're helping us every time you buy a book through the site or click through our Amazon banner, because we get a few pennies from every purchase you make, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Once again, thank you to Rinker Buck for being the author so nice he joined us twice, and for letting us tag along on his book tour. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview, on Twitter at History Dean or on our Facebook page, which is Facebook.com/slash historyauthor. I hope you'll join us next week for another Trip into the Past here on IR Radio, or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please leave a review. Well, that's it for this week's special paperback installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's interview, Classical Wisdom Wednesday, and History in Five Friday. Until then,